Welcome to the Judge John Hodgman Podcast. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. With me, as always, the New York Times' most popular columnist, <laughs> Judge John Hodgman. Uh, definitely in the under 200-word category. That's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, take that, Ross Duthot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? I think we're more popular than that guy. <laughs> I mean, at least at parties. <laughs> Sorry, Ross. I don't know. Maybe he's great at parties. I don't know. He plays the piano. Oh, that's and fun. And then he has everybody come and sing. He does, It's not just like all about him. Hey, listen, I know we got a lot to go through today on this special episode, but I got to start out with some advice, same advice that I gave to my children uh, that you might want to give to your children if they're considering taking music lessons. Don't take lessons uh, in the viola or the clarinet, right? Take lessons in an instrument that you can play at a party. If you're that kid who's yeah. playing the clarinet at a teenage party, uh, that's not going to work out so well. Uh, <laughs> piano, guitar, ukulele, maybe. Well, I mean, John, to be fair, it could be 1938. <laughs> that's true. That's true. It could be 1938, and it could be uh, uh, Woody Herman. He was a clarinetist, yeah. right? Yeah, Benny Goodman's a Benny clarinetist, Goodman. right? Little Benny Goodman's uh, 15th birthday party, for sure. <laughs> okay, look. Uh, this is a very special episode of the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Yes. If you are within the sound of our voices, that means that you are a member of MaximumFun.org, and we offer you our deepest thanks. That's right, Jesse. This is a special members-only episode just for you. You make it possible for us to provide you with the show every week. Thank you for being here. We cannot do this without you. And this is a special episode to me. There are a lot of disputes in the world, Jesse. And we're doing our part to solve them. But one thing we've learned over the eight-plus years, eight-plus years of dispensing justice on the Internet, is that the thing people care most about, the cause that inspires the most anguish, the most passion, eclipsing all other issues, is fighting on the Internet over whether a thing is a sandwich. Specifically, <laughs> whether, specifically whether a hot dog is a sandwich, which it is not. And even though I've already ruled repeatedly on this subject... I still get tweets and letters from people offering a variety of counter arguments as to why a hot dog is a sandwich. And actually, I say variety. It's really just one argument over and over and over and over, which is it is meat and bread, meat and bread, meat and bread. So kill the pig, slit her throat, spill her blood, put her in bread. She's a sandwich. <laughs> Mob mentality. We just wrote a new middle school literature classic. <laughs> That's true. We won't, we won't get any royalties. So, listeners, members, friends, today I am going to explain to you, once and for all, why the position of this court is that a hot dog is not a sandwich, and why I am right, and you are wrong. And I'll do all this at the end of the episode. Jesse, that's called a tease. Oh, broadcasting. Yes, Hot Dog is a Sandwich Manifesto comes at the end of this episode because the hot dog sandwich debate is just the tip of the iceberg of pedantic, pointless, and yet strangely compelling food debates that flood into my inbox. And by iceberg, of course, I mean a massive wedge of iceberg lettuce floating in the North Sea, which would not be a salad. <laughs> although I'm sure there are plenty of you who will argue that it is a salad because the dressing is the ocean. Is this thing a salad? Is a thing a soup? Is a thing an obviously different thing? Today, with the aid of my bailiff, Jesse Thorne, I will resolve all of these disputes and or as many as we have time for, and then I'm shutting the courthouse door on these kinds of petitions forever. Forever, Jesse. 
No more is a thing a thing food stuff. Let's get to this uh, this tasty docket. Oh, I said tasty. That's the worst. Let's get to here's, it. Here's numbers. Here's <laughs> something from Jane. Hi, my name is Jane. I'm nine years old. My mom and I have a disagreement on what the definition of a salad is. My mom thinks that a salad is a combination of ingredients with a dressing, eaten cold. I think that a salad is a combination of solid ingredients that does not need a dressing because sometimes I don't use dressing. But my mom just calls that a pile of vegetables. <laughs> I also don't think that the temperature matters. Can you please help us solve our dispute? Well, Jane, thank you for writing in. I'm really honored to have you as a listener. I know that a lot of uh, young guns listen to the program. and while Pronounced I- Funyuns. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what if Funyuns were our sponsor? I'd be into it. I really like Funyuns. Yeah. I like Bugles too, especially oh, well. ranch flavor. I mean, come on. You're talking about America's favorite finger hat? <laughs> yeah. They're, they're actually, that is actually their motto now? <laughs> Sorry, canned black olives. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good too. Well, you could alternate Bugles and black olives on your fingers and you'd be the hit of the party. If you had a giant iceberg wedge, some bugles, and some canned black olives, you're most of the way to a salad, I think. You tell me. According to Jane, anyway. Because Jane, I'm going to quote my favorite movie that is a little too old for you, but probably in a year or two, it would be fine for you to see Moonrise Kingdom, directed by Wes Anderson, in which Sam says to his beloved, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And it's my favorite line in that movie because he really means both things. I really do love you, but no, a combination of solid ingredients without a dressing is not a salad. A salad requires a dressing. It needs the application of some dressing to be a salad. I don't want to talk about fruit salad with you. I'm talking about vegetables, and especially if they're solid, solid ingredients that you haven't even bothered to cut up. But somehow I don't think that's what you meant. What you're describing has its own name, and that is crudité, which is French for raws. <laughs> Raw, fresh vegetables served cold on a tray or whatever is a delicious thing, and you might dip them in some dip, but that doesn't make it a salad either. And finally, yeah, temperature matters because uh, the salad has to be cool. If it's a hot salad, that's a Nick Weiger special. It's a reference to our <laughs> friends, the Doughboys. So, Jane, I'm sorry, but I have to find in favor of your mom on this one. I feel bad about it, but salad justice is best served cold. I really like hot salad. Did you know that, Judge Hodgman? I'm a real Nick Weiger. I'm something of a heat seeker in that sense. Are you? Wait a minute. Is there a hot salad that we can... Is there Well, like... hot might be strong, but mm-hmm. I like a, a like a... Uh, what's that French salad called that is warm spinach with bacon lardons? Oh, sure. Yeah, but that's not hot. Warm, right? Yeah, but the spinach is wilted slightly by the heat. My understanding of that salad, and I don't know the French name for it, so I look forward to all your letters. But that's one that you take raw spinach, cold spinach. True. And you dress it not only with lardons, but the but the bacon fat that you've rendered right right in cooking the lardon so yeah there is a little bit of on the plate cooking and definitely a little bit of heat for nick weiger to seek 
Right. By the way, Jane, you can watch Moonrise Kingdom when you're like 11, I think. Depends. It's up to your mom. But uh, do not listen to the Doughboys until you're 18. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of salads and mother-child cases, we heard from Nora about a dispute she's having with her kid. I took my three kids grocery shopping with me. And as a reward for being good, they were allowed to choose a lunch from the store's hot food bar. My five-year-old proceeded to choose a bed of macaroni and cheese, chicken fingers to surround it, and a topping of French fried potatoes. He called that his salad. He's since begun calling it a meat salad, (laughs) and he keeps asking to go back to the upscale grocery store to make it. Please, judge, forbid my son from calling this a salad. Meat salad. I love this kid, I gotta say, and I envy him. Yeah, it sounds like a great meal, honestly. Yeah, I would like to eat that. Would you call that a salad, Bailiff Jesse Thorne? No, but I would call it tasty. Ugh, that word again. Sorry, sorry. I would call it numbers. <laughs> would you call it hashtag yum? <laughs> yes, I would say that out loud with my mouth. As someone who, I love food, I love cooking, I love the history of food, I love the culture of food. I love looking at food, I love reading recipes, and I absolutely adore when people take pictures of food. But the way that people describe food in captions, really, it's it's so consistently nauseating to me. And yet I turn (laughs) to it again and again, and I, I guess that must be part of the pleasure for me. It's a little gross. It's a little like... When I'm on Instagram and putting putty on top of things and then peeling it off, it's gross, but people like it. So go ahead, hashtag yum. I don't think that your food is gross, unnamed son of Nora. A bed of macaroni and cheese, chicken fingers as a garnish, and a dressing of French fried potatoes. Sounds like something I would want to eat all the time, but in no way, shape, or form is it a salad. A, because... Uh, it has no dressing. Um, that said, you could probably squeeze some ranch dressing on top of that whole thing, and it would be pretty intensely. Mm. <laughs> now I'm changing my mind a little bit, but no. I switched it in my head to blue cheese. Blue cheese, sure. Yeah, that, but that would be kind of a wild poutine. And in no way a meat salad, as much as I like those two words shoved together. They also share that like attractive yet disgusting quality that draws me to food Instagram. So I do forbid unnamed son of Nora from calling this thing a salad. Also, he's getting it from the hot bar. There's a salad bar and there's a hot bar. So obviously I find in Nora's favor. What's your ruling on salad bars? Yay or nay? Yay, because I am unconcerned about uh, health and hygiene. (laughs) Sure. Relatively speaking. And I am more than happy to eat a pupusa off of an unlicensed griddle outside of our office here in MacArthur Park in Los Angeles. Right. And as with a sandwich store, a good sandwich store, Mm -hmm. a salad bar solves the problem of I would like to have a lot of different things in my food, but I don't want to keep enough of those things in my house or do the necessary chopping to maintain them. Like when I make a salad at home, 
it has a ma- you typically has a maximum of uh, maybe three ingredients. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe four. Maybe yeah. it'll have you know it'll be arugula, some cherry tomatoes, uh, some shaved parmesan. Right. Uh, a- and then a-, a dressing on top. Um, whereas at a salad bar, I, I don't have to open a whole can of baby corns if I think it would be fun to have a baby corn on my salad. I don't know what ba- baby corns are or where they come from, but they fascinate me. I'm with you, Bailiff Jesse Thorne. As long as it's properly sneeze guarded, I'm all for a salad bar. I, lo- I love it. There used to be in the Boston area, and I won't do the joke just to spare you, in the Boston area of New England, a chain called Super Salad, and it was S-O-U-P-E-R, and then the word salad, Super Salad. And was that ever a treat to go and take a little bit of everything and share my saliva and breath with the whole world who would come after me? I've also always loved a garbanzo bean or chickpea. Yeah. But a whole can of garbanzo beans is just way more garbanzo beans than I need for anything in my life other than making hummus. Right. So I like the idea that I could add some uh, vegetarian protein to my salad in that manner. You ever make your own hummus? I have made my own hummus, yeah. Do you do the thing that I learned from my wife who learned it from Smitten Kitchen, that you got to peel each garbanzo bean? You gotta, Heck no. You know, you gotta you gotta take each garbanzo bean. It's canned garbanzo beans. It's fine. It's fine. And then you uh, you give them a little squeeze, and they pop out of this little skin that they have. And Never. Does, that seems weirdly labor intensive, for what is basically mush, but the outcome is distinct, distinctly better, distinctly smoother. It was amazing. I'm out on that. Yeah, yeah. That's why it's done in restaurants. But that's why restaurant hummus is often so much silkier than homemade hummus. And I liked it. I'm just, let, I'm just letting people know that that's one of those things. Most of the time, Cook's Illustrated of the World are going to tell you to do nine different steps to get it just right when really one step is the only thing you need. But this is one extra step that I actually found to be worth it. Okay, here's something from Valerie. Is it a cheese stick or string cheese? My eighth grade daughter and her friend were threatened with permanent suspension from their assistant principal for calling the item a cheese stick instead of string cheese. There was also a dispute about how to eat it properly. <laughs> um, I think that person needs to be fired. <laughs> I think that assistant principal needs to be fired fired i mean it had to have been a joke right yes but you can't although i'm thinking back to the assistant principal at my high school hard to say right i mean knowing an eighth grader who lives in my house i guess an eighth grader is sophisticated enough to appreciate hyperbole and not actually worry that they're going to be suspended for eating string cheese incorrectly and calling it by the incorrect name, cheese stick. So I hope that those kids were not traumatized, but there's no question that they are wrong, right? It is called string cheese. These days, there are plenty of convenience cheeses packaged in a string cheese-like shape. Uh, You can get cheddar or um, jack 
in that shape. And I would call that a cheese stick. Oh, all right. But. But. Go on. If we're talking about stringy cheese, then yes, I would call it string cheese. And that honestly is the great pleasure. Peeling it off in strings is the great pleasure of eating that cheese. It is an otherwise unremarkable cheese. Right. It's a bland mozzarella. And it, right. and it's that way for a reason, because it was invented in Wisconsin. Maybe. <laughs> no offense to Wisconsin's an amazing cheese state, but it's actually a fascinating story, at least to me, that string cheese was invented in Wisconsin in 1976 at the Baker Cheese Company. And the Baker Cheese Company had historically been a cheddar producer, like a lot of Wisconsin cheesemakers and dairies. But in fact... Uh, it changed over, and it changed over because after World War II, lots and lots and lots of returning GIs came home, having eaten Italian food, including pizza, and they wanted it. And it was the beginning of the huge boom of Italian-American cuisine in the United States. And the thing that people could not get, they could get the bread, they could get tomato sauce, but they couldn't get the mozz. There was not a lot of mozz in Wisconsin at that time. And so to meet this demand, uh, a lot of dairies, including Baker Cheese, ch- turned into mozzarella manufacturers. And then sometime uh, in the 70s or so, uh, f- uh, I'm told it is Frank Baker and Jeb Cubs of Baker Cheese, developed this uh, another product, which was these little cylinders of, of stringy mozzarella. And it's stringy by, by nature, because of the way you pull mozzarella it, it naturally forms these strings, and there's a lot of versions of this cheese in other cultures. Armenian string cheese has this great black cumin, and it. it's wonderful. But this was I'm a big eater of queso Oaxaca. Yeah, for example, queso Oaxaca, exactly. Uh, similar these these beautiful braided string cheeses. But the string cheese that that the Baker Cheese Company, Frank Baker and, and Jeb Cubs invented, was marketed initially to uh, bars in Wisconsin, and then to kids. Um, and it's fun to peel off those strings, people decided. And it's also fun to eat a thing that doesn't have a strong flavor all the time. Uh, and the name of that product is string cheese. And that is how you eat string cheese. So I am presuming that if they are eating string cheese, they are being threatened with expulsion because they're chomping it off impatiently rather than enjoying the cheese for what it is. And the introduction of new foods to the American foodscape which was a thing we should celebrate. So there. Sorry about that, kids. I am really ruling against the kids so far. I don't know if this is going to continue. Here's something from Connor. My former professor at Emerson College insists that you never eat a sandwich of any kind, including hamburgers and other hot sandwiches, after 3 p.m. He does include one exception to the rule. He says that after 3 p.m. you can eat a hot dog if and only if you are at a ball game. Please tell my professor he is wrong and force him to eat a cold sandwich for dinner to make up for asserting this weird rule. Uh, I believe that we actually have tape of the professor's own voice explaining his position. Roll tape. I have many rules around food, and my strongest food rule consists of sandwiches. That rule is that sandwiches are not to be eaten after 3 p.m. because sandwiches are a lunch food, and lunch is not eaten after 3 p.m. 
My definition of a sandwich is also pretty broad, and that includes virtually anything between bread, your conventional meats between bread, and, and that also goes on to include grilled cheese, PBJ, hot dogs, etc., even things in the hot pocket variety. Anyone consuming sandwiches after 3 p.m. is basically a trash monster, and may God have mercy on their souls. I don't even know where to begin with this prof. Coming up on my yeah, podcast. Sorry, egghead. First of all. Maybe that's how they do it in your ivory tower. It's Emerson College. It's a, it's a, it's a, a wonderful. Your ivory hillock. <laughs> ivory. It's not the structure that's the problem. It's what it's made of. I think it's sort of like dented bronze tower. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not running down Emerson College. It's an amazing school that's trained some of the best um, music professionals and comedians uh, broadcasters, actors. It's a great career-oriented performing arts school and uh, has a great um, radio station, um, but a very poor hiring policy when it comes to their professors <laughs> because, uh, Professor Wrong, you're wrong. There is an important culinary tradition of eating sandwiches at nighttime. I grew up visiting with my mom and dad, her mom and dad in Philadelphia, we would drive or sometimes fly and get in fairly late in the evening. And my grandfather would have spent the entire afternoon buying cold cuts of a wide variety, including souse, which is a kind of head cheese and normal other things that are not head cheese too and meticulously watching as they were sliced at the deli. Brought home, unwrapped, put out on the table with rye bread and hot mustard uh, and pickles of different varieties. And we would sit around the table because it was nighttime now. The journey was over and we were starving. And there was just something perfect about sitting around the table and everyone making their own sandwiches and talking about what it took to get there. Similarly, when you're driving home after a long trip and you get in and it's too late and too hard to work and make a whole meal, making a sandwich and eating it out of the fridge, you know, with the person you've traveled with or the person you've reunited with, it's glorious. And I know there are a lot of children listening today, so I will stipulate this by saying once you are 21 and willing to drink responsibly, Getting home of an evening out with friends and having a sandwich is one of the great pleasures. Relegating sandwiches to lunchtime is monstrous and wrong. I'm sorry, Professor, wrong. You're right about one thing. It is okay to eat a hot dog at the ballpark after three or anytime. But it is not a sandwich, as we shall reiterate later on. But thank you for calling in. I'd love to hear more about your food rules. Uh, absolutely send more voicemails and uh, let us know what other ideas you have. You know what? I never want to hear from this guy again. No, I want to hear from him. Anybody I... who's trying to stand between me and cheeseburgers <laughs> is nothing but trouble. You know, you know, it's always lunchtime somewhere on earth. So enjoy your cheeseburger. Imagine this guy trying to tell me I can't have a sloppy joe for dinner. Give me a break. Here's something from David. Every year in February, my friend Laura hosts a massive party that she calls Dumpling Fest. 
Guests are invited to bring a batch of their favorite dumplings from around the world. She's laid out criteria for what constitutes a dumpling. A sweet or savory filling wrapped in dough and cooked together. By this definition, everything from a pot sticker and a momo to a calzone and a toaster pastry have been included in the definition of dumplings. I've enjoyed using this definition to bring foods that aren't normally thought of as dumplings for my contribution. Our dispute arises over the nature of the shumai. I argue that it shares the critical components of a dumpling, filling wrapped and cooked in dough. Also, it's dim sum served alongside other dumplings. Laura argues that because the filling is not fully enclosed in the dough, it doesn't meet the definition and therefore is not a dumpling. What do you think, Judge? Well, I have to confess, I like shumai. And these are little delicate dumplings if you haven't had them. The dumpling wrapper, the skin, is very, very um, light and diaphanous compared to, say, a pot sticker or a, or a pork bun. And I had not even considered the fact that the wrapping of the dumpling is, does not actually meet at the top. Yeah, it's more like the disposable cup that a cupcake comes in. Well, yeah, but Jesse, I wouldn't agree with that. I would say that a shumai is really just an Asian mini quiche. <laughs> <laughs> I take Laura's point that by her definition, and there's a lot of varieties of shumai, and some of them are more open at the top than others, but I'll concede by her definition, because the filling is not fully enclosed in the wrapping, like, say, a toaster oven pastry, that there is a difference there. That said, anyone who would admit a toaster pastry under the definition of dumpling and omit shumai, it's a terrible exclusion of what is obviously considered by everyone else who is not Laura, and in particular, the wide variety of Asian communities that actually make and consume these dumplings in all their different forms, renders their judgment invalid in an offensive way. But I got, you know, she made the rules of this junk dump party and they're having a good time, I guess. So I'll let it stand in her favor with the obvious legal caveat that she's a monster. Sorry, Laura. Do you disagree with me, Jesse? No. I mean, it's a classic example of somebody whose need to create arbitrary rules has occluded their willingness to accept reasonable social convention. Yeah, or maybe Laura just likes telling David to get lost. Or she just is really into toaster pastries. My wife loves toaster pastries. Yeah. The party you're having is not a dumpling fest. It's a dump fest. <laughs> Where a whole bunch of different foods that share some superficial similarity are all dumped together under one title. And if you're having a good time, great. I got to tell you the truth. It's almost lunchtime as we record this here in Los Angeles, and there's a Mongolian restaurant down the street, and I'm, I'm thinking hard about going and buying some booze. Are those dumplings? Yeah, they're good, too. 
just because they're children in the audience. I don't want you, I don't want them to think that you're just going to go over to the Mongolian hot pot, <laughs> yeah, and, st- and, and start just... drinking fifty glasses of red wine or whatever. No, not at all. No. Okay, John, I've got. There's got to be twenty questions here. Yeah, we're gonna bust through them for snappy judgments. Are you ready for this? I'm ready, and I'm gonna really keep it brief. And I want everyone to know that these are actual questions and disputes that people have sent in to me recently when we put out a call for these kinds of disputes. But actually, they've accrued over the years as well. So get ready for the final rulings on the is a this a this because uh, we're putting it in the vault after this one. Here we go. Is a lasagna a casserole? Uh, affirmative, yes. Is a lasagna a cake? Negative, not affirmative. Is a burrito a wrap? Absolutely not. Do your homework. Look up burrito and look up the history of the burrito because it's interesting. I don't have time to give it to you all here. Well, Jesse, I don't need to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, are you telling me to think more about burritos? <laughs> <laughs> No, but a burrito is a, a Mexican-American invention, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And a wrap is something that yuppies thought up in the late 80s. One is utterly banal and mundane and marketing-driven, and the other, the burrito, is a history of an incredible American ingenuity and talent and uh, people coming to this country to make a new life for themselves and adaptation, and, uh, and it's an amazing thing. So no, it's not a wrap. I, I'm worried now. I'm really scared that I'm going to get correction emails. So I'm going to just add a couple little pieces of information to that please. characterization that I just agreed to. Yeah, no, please. First of all, there are burritos in Mexico. They are different from the type of burritos that I grew up eating in the neighborhood I grew up in, the Mission District of San Francisco. That's where the burrito uh, but, was invented, the American burrito, right? Yeah, the American right. burrito. Yeah, but there is a food called the burrito. It is a little bit closer to a taco. It's a simpler food. Um, and also, uh, interestingly, I think just because of the, uh, migration patterns of the mission district in San Francisco, where I grew up, I think there are pretty significant contributions from, uh, Central American people Mm -hmm. to the mission burrito. I think there are a fair number of Mexican restaurants in the mission district in San Francisco that had a lot of, uh, particularly Salvadorans, uh, but you know, Guatemalans, Hondurans, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you're adding those details, Jesse, because I learned something, and I'm glad that I did. Rather than come up with odious comparisons to put on Twitter, just spend some time on Wikipedia and learn a thing about a thing. And you know what, Jesse Thorne? I apologize to the rap. Because even the rap, which I totally associate with the most anodyne, sort of like lunch-at-your-office-desk type food. Yeah, I mean, it was the new Jamba Juice. (laughs) Even that has an interesting story. Do you know that Bobby Valentine, baseball's Bobby Valentine, claims to have invented it in 1982, the rap? Wait, Bobby Valentine, the legendary baseball manager, probably best known for his success as one of the first or perhaps even the first American to manage a Japanese baseball team? Yeah, according to this website that I just found, and I'll give the name, delish.com, a piece written in 2012, quote, Valentine is probably best known for returning to the New York Mets dugout disguised in a fake mustache and glasses after arguing a call and being ejected by the umpire, which is dope. (laughs) But he'd like us to better remember him by his clever skills in the kitchen. He's also a restaurateur when he served the first sandwich wrap at his restaurant in Stamford, Connecticut in 1982. Everyone go and read a thing before you start getting up in my mentions with his burrito a wrap. 
Okay. Is cheesecake a cake or a pie? Cake. Don't at me. Is pizza an open-faced sandwich? No. Is a white pizza, which is to say a pizza without red sauce, still a pizza? You better not even ask that question in New Haven, Connecticut. Of course it is. Of course it is. I'm getting upset now. Is a vanilla soy latte a type of three-bean soup? Curveball, absolutely. (laughs) That is the first one of these stupid questions that has ever actually impressed me. (laughs) Like, you know how people are like, well, what about this? And you're like, God, can it? Uh, That one, I like that one. Coffee bean, soybean, and vanilla bean. Okay, here's a big hot one. Is cereal a soup? No, no. This is, no. You know this. You know this. You're just asking this for attention. Yeah, pedantically, you could probably look at a dictionary definition of soup and retrofit it to cereal. But as pointed out in a website that I discovered while I was doing my research today, Arendt Pedantry, a person I know nothing about other than he or she, he or she or they, listens to the podcast and and mentioned Merriam-Webster's betrayal of us by saying that a hot dog is a sandwich— as he pointed out, dictionaries are not there to prescribe what language is, but to describe how it is used. And you would never, ever, under normal circumstances, say, what soup should I have, broccoli cheddar or Rice Krispies? You know this. Stop that. I really hope whoever writes Errant Pedantry isn't a member of the alt-right or something. I don't know anything about them other than the one blog post that I read. Is a root beer float a soup? No. You can eat it with a spoon and root beer is boiled. No. No. Get out of here. No. Is beef bone broth just cow tea? I'll allow it. (laughs) What is the difference between a cupcake and a muffin? First of all, there is a difference. The flavor profile is of a muffin. It tends to be more savory. That of a cupcake tends to be more sweet, plus there is a baking difference. Muffins generally have a more crumbly crumb. A cupcake has a a tighter crumb, a tighter sponge. It is literally a miniature cake. If you wouldn't eat a whole cake of something, then it's probably a muffin. If you eat a whole cake of that thing, then it is a cupcake. I like the idea that anything I wouldn't eat a whole cake of is a muffin. Like corn on the cob. No, no, now see that's where these things get started. I mean I mean to say, like, imagine a bran muffin. I know it's disgusting, but imagine it in a huge bunt cake. Wait, hold on. I'm putting on my sunglasses and climbing into my nineteen eighty seven BMW convertible. <laughs> Gotta put my leg warmers on. Okay. okay, got it. Bobby Valentine's in there trying to get you to eat a wrap. Come on, it's good. <laughs> now, if you you know, a cupcake will always translate up to a cake. A muffin won't, typically. But again, it's sort of like sandwichness. You know it when you see it. Are Pop-Tarts ravioli? Uh, no. Asked and answered. No. Are empanadas pies? N- no, of course not. Would you say differently? You you know more about uh, the, the cuisine of Central and South America and Mexico. I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that uh, an empanada is a pie in the same way that, um, you know, a, a Cornish pasty is or whatever. Yeah, they share. They sh- I was just you're right. They share a, a kind of physical DNA with like fried pies of the South, hand pies of different kinds and that can be savory or sweet. 
So I, I guess you could make an argument, but why? Because you can say empanada and everyone knows what you're talking about. Is a milkshake a drink or dessert? Milkshake should be a dessert, but it is de facto a drink. And that is, Have you ever looked at how many calories are in yeah, a milkshake? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's a, it's a crime against humanity to have marketed milkshakes to children as drinks. <laughs> but there's no question that culturally that that is what it is. It's like somebody looked at ice cream and they were like, this tastes great, but we we need a way to ease it down so you can get more volume in you. Yeah. I have to say, you know, I can't imagine as an alternate point of view that you would ever have a milkshake for a dessert. Like that would be an unsatisfying dessert to me. Don't you agree, Jesse? Mm. I've had a milkshake as a dessert. I mean, I really love ice cream and milkshakes. Oh, me too. Yeah. Those are my two real favorites. I would definitely not want to have as a dessert that kind of milkshake that you get from a fast food restaurant, which I do actually kind of like eating. But uh, the, oh, the, the kind stuff? where, yeah, the kind where, I mean, the main thing that's objectionable to me about it is that the coldness of it is incidental to the product mm-hmm. because it has so many thickeners in it that it has that kind of tacky, gooey quality, whether or not it's cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're actually activating some taste bud memories for me that are not uh, bad, that are not yeah. wholly bad from I that. Got, I got to go to In-N-Out. <laughs> Be back in a yeah, minute. Okay. But remember, it's a special treat. It's not a drink. Is Cincinnati chili just spaghetti bolognese? The only reason you're asking that is because Cincinnati chili is served over spaghetti as opposed to rice. But that's ridiculous. If you knew anything about Cincinnati chili or bolognese, you wouldn't even bother to ask that because the ingredient profiles are radically different. Is a grilled cheese with tomato or meat in it still considered a grilled cheese? A grilled cheese with tomato is a legit sandwich called a grilled cheese with tomato. But if you put meat in it, I think you're now getting into ham and cheese. Territory. What about bacon? What if it's bacon? Grilled cheese and bacon, borderline, but that's a grilled cheese. I mean, we all know what a grilled cheese looks like, right? What it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be square with yellow or white melted American cheese in it. Maybe a garnish ingredient like a bacon or tomato grilled on a flat grill and cut, you know, probably in tri- triangles would be my reference now and then, but I grew up with rectangles. It's your basic grilled cheese sandwich there. If you add a little something, it's not going to change it. But if you add a lot of meat, then it's something different. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental question to me seems like it is, is the cheese the star of the show or is it incidental? Like a patty melt is obviously not a grilled cheese. Correct. roughly speaking, a grilled cheese sandwich with meat in it. But if you add bacon to a grilled cheese sandwich, it's still about the cheese. I'm so hungry now. I'm so hungry. I want a patty melt so bad. Patty melts are great. And if that egghead professor, if that four eyes, I couldn't see him, but I can make presumptions. If that four eyes tries to stand in between me and my patty melts. Yeah, what what allowance does he make for a hot turkey open-faced sandwich? (sighs) Like that's sickening. Served at the Busy Bee restaurant on Beacon Street. Hey, Professor Wrong, I hope it's still there. The Busy Bee, it was there last time I was there. It was Busy Bee on Beacon Street. In Brookline, Massachusetts, a region of New England, go and have a hot turkey sandwich at night. That's I was supposed to order you to eat something that was against your rules, and that's what I'm ordering you to eat. Let me know if it's still there. Give me your review. Is tomato bisque just a savory smoothie? Disgusting. Get, get off my podcast. 
Finally, this episode would not be complete without hearing some pedantry regarding hot dog law. We heard from Sean in Australia who wrote in about the settled law regarding hot dogs. Here's what he says. There is, in my opinion, one lingering statement of injustice that's perpetuated on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I feel compelled to write in to set the record straight with irrefutable proof. Regarding everyone's favorite combination of yeast, flour, salt, eggs, and fats encasing a tantalizingly tasty cylindrical meat product. Oh, no. You did not just say tasty, Sean. All right. Go on. It is 100% a sandwich. The predominant reason for the invention of the sandwich was to hold and eat meat without getting your hands tarnished by grease and grime. Well, the first off, I mean, the first problem is he has apparently like silver hands that are (laughs) being tarnished by grease and grime. (laughs) To that end, a hot dog perfectly serves functionality and description. Can I just pause just for a second? Just in your opinion, do you think he's using enough words? (laughs) No. (laughs) All right, continue. Furthermore, the below sandwich alignment chart displays... Oh, finally, someone's sending us the alignment chart. Finally, somebody is sending us a thing that... Uh, All right, stop right. We don't need to hear any more from Sean. Let let the record show that Sean sent in a graphic, I guess a meme, that's been circulating the internet and has been forwarded many a time to both me and my bailiff, Jesse Thorne. Here's a fun game to play. Mm -hmm. Is Jesse passing a kidney stone or looking at a matrix of sandwich crap? (laughs) It's called the sandwich alignment chart. And and I'm just going to, I'm going to let bailiff Jesse Thorne go through his process. But just to explain to you that, um, yeah, I've seen it. It's fun. I think it's funny. Um, I think it's pretty clever. I don't think Sean invented it. If he did, kudos to you, Sean. I don't, I'm not going to put it on the Instagram. Sorry. It's, just search for it. You can find it yourself. I can't, I can't have this thing on my Instagram. And, you know, here's the thing. We've been a little tough on the children in this podcast. We've been a little bit groany. It's hard to get the same sandwich alignment chart from you folks all the time. But... It's not that hard because what it means is you're listening and you're paying attention. And if I seem harsh on you guys sometimes, I hope you appreciate that it's A, in a spirit of good fun, and B, that I am very, very grateful that you're listening and engaging with the podcast, even to write in letters that tell me I'm all wrong. And to abide by my own rule, which is it's not fun unless it's fun for everyone, if I say or do something in particular in response to something you've sent in that just makes you feel rotten or makes you feel a little beat up on or whatever, by all means, write in and I will apologize. I'm, it's not my intent to make anyone feel bad. So I feel like it's important for me to say that on this members only special episode, I give it to you uh, with real, real thanks in my heart. And uh, and I'm, I'm sure that Bailiff Jesse Thorne if he has passed his kidney stone or whatever, feels the same way. I will love all our listeners. I want them to know that. With all of that said, in response to Sean, here is my very final word on why a hot dog is not a sandwich. And after this, we shall not speak of it again, nor need you send me things about it. 
Rest assured, all of your questions, your counter-arguments, and your concerns shall be addressed. Bailiff Jesse Thorne, you, you, may, you may want to go and, and get some booze from the Mongolian hot pot place, because this is going to be a minute. Okay, look, about hot dogs, I get it. I understand why you are upset. It looks like meat inside of bread. I mean, it is meat inside of bread. It resembles a sandwich in so many ways, it seems profoundly counterintuitive to say that a hot dog is not a sandwich. So counterintuitive that it is obviously disruptive and infuriating to a lot of you, and I'm sorry. And look, again, you have some heroes on your side. Stephen Colbert is out there every week, pretty much, stumping for the hot dog being a sandwich. And he is very smart. He's a national treasure, and I want to be on his show again. So I take my career in my hands when I say that it is not a sandwich. And Stephen also put this question to no less than Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, another national treasure. And she concluded that a hot dog is a sandwich too, albeit somewhat reluctantly. I think she was put on the spot. I mean, they're both my heroes. Though I would argue that distracting Ruth Bader Ginsburg in any way from her primary mission right now, which is to be alive, that is an act of treason. Sorry, Stephen. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary, as I mentioned before, my personal standby, and even our old friend of the podcast, Emily Brewster, from that same dictionary, maintain that a hot dog is a sandwich. And I would like to think that they are doing this specifically and only to troll me, John Hodgman, as that would mean I am the center of the universe. But one thing that I have learned from doing this podcast is that if every white man thinks he is the center of the universe, it might mean that none of us is. And I honestly have no doubt that Emily and Merriam-Webster, which I call Mayor they truly believe what they are saying. They believe their conclusions. So yes, you could argue that the dictionary definition of a sandwich includes a hot dog, but then you would be the kind of person who starts an argument with the dictionary definition of a sandwich, blah, 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 and you don't want to be that person. Dictionaries offer terrible evidence for any argument that you want to propose. And yet for all of the support that you might feel you have in your mistaken belief, you're still wrong. A hot dog is not a sandwich, but, but, but meat and bread. Yeah, I get it. It really does look a lot like a sandwich, but just because a thing resembles a thing or, or even shares similar cultural or literal genetic DNA, that does not make the two things the same thing. You wouldn't say it about identical twins. You wouldn't say it about monkeys and apes. You don't need to say it about sandwiches, which are a kind of convenient hand food involving meat and bread, or hot dogs, which are a different kind of that. But, but, but meat and bread. Yeah, I get it. Sometimes the correct answer is more than what you see with your eyes. What I'm saying may seem counterintuitive, but in fact, my journey to the ruling that a hot dog is not a sandwich began intuitively. When the question was first put to me in the pages of the New York Times Magazine, I did not know at the time that that question had been roiling around in sports Twitter and on ESPN for years. I didn't know about that for obvious reasons. It was all new to me, but I understood in that moment, intuitively, no, a hot dog is not a sandwich. And you know it too. The stronger you defend the sandwichness of a hot dog, I think the more clearly you feel in your heart there's something wrong here. It just feels different. The reason we have this conversation is because it's hard to call it a sandwich. 
And that is why, as is often brought up in this debate, if you were told that sandwiches were being served at a party and you went to that party and the host opened the door and showed you a silver platter of hot dogs, you would hate that person. You would think that that person is some weird dude who made up a whole new system just to be contrarian and is using you to make a dumb show-offy point and you'd be right. Intuitively, we know there's something different about a hot dog. And that's why the question is so compelling. But rather than just get into a fight on the internet about it, I decided to try to figure out what is it that is different, if there is anything. I decided to apply the basics of deductive logic that I learned in seventh grade and have never thought of again and barely remember. I mean, by no means am I a logician. But I did do some quick Wikipedia research on Karl Popper's concept of falsifiability, and I appreciated that to get this right, I must conclude a priori that a hot dog is a sandwich, unless, unless I could find some disqualifying condition, some quality that hot dogs have that sandwiches in all of their many varied forms do not share at all. And it took me a while to find the distinction. Obviously, it's meat and bread. We got it. Obviously, temperature is not the difference because there are plenty of hot sandwiches. Does the fact that the bread is a hinged roll make a difference? Not really. I'm not going to risk the wrath of Philadelphia by saying a hoagie isn't a sandwich, and it's the same. Does it matter that the hot dog is nestled in the bun rather than sandwiched between two pieces of bread? No, because there are definitely open-faced sandwiches. They're weird, and they pretty much defeat the purpose of sandwiches, but nonetheless, we call them sandwiches. And by the way, anyone who steps to me with the argument that sandwiches are sandwiches because things are sandwiched in them can immediately step away from me in shame. Sandwiched. The adjective follows the sandwich. It is derived from the sandwich. That's where we got the adjective from. You're using the premise to prove itself, which is the true meaning of begging the question. Maybe, maybe it is. I'm not sure. Don't, don't write me letters. Then finally, I struck upon it. It is a small, almost meaningless and, and not particularly exciting distinction. But nonetheless, after a lot of hypothetical stress testing, I determined the distinction to be true. A hot dog is not a sandwich because you would never cut it in half. Cut in half ability. Genial share ability. Eat some now and save some for later ability. Divide and serve with a cup of soup ability. Are all intrinsic to sandwiches. Even subs, heroes, hoagies, grinders, wedges. Sure, you can physically cut a hot dog in half, and maybe you would do so under the tyranny of a child. But one would never routinely cut a hot dog in half in a public setting without expecting and deserving some looks. To me, this satisfied that a hot dog is, literally and figuratively, a singular thing unto itself, indivisible, unique. It's part of why a hot dog is a hot dog, even when there is no bun at all. And it's also why uh, a hamburger is not a sandwich, by the way. It's a hamburger. The top of a whole separate genre of ground meat and ground other stuff, burgers, that it created that you also do not cut in half. Do not at me. Now, you may question my logic. You may say that I've applied Karl Popper's concept of falsifiability incorrectly. And I bet you're right. I bet I don't understand it correctly. But don't write me letters because I'm still right. I'm still right because tacos 
are not hot dogs, and they are not sandwiches either. They come down from a different culinary, cultural, and historical tradition, just like sandwiches do. Sandwiches have a history. They were invented, of course, by the Earl of Sandwich, who called for, guess what, meat between two slices of bread, so that he could eat with one hand while gambling and not get his cards all greasy. And this all happened in 17 blah, 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 who cares? I'm not looking it up because it's probably all apocryphal anyway. But what we do know, and the point, is that the sandwich came to the United States in the 18th century from England, just like the Founding Fathers, and the sandwich also owned slaves and hated taxes. That last part isn't true. The hot dog did not make it here to the United States until the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. And of course, it did not come from England. It came from Germany. Frankfurt, specifically. Get it? The Frankfurter was made from pork or beef or a combination. The Wiener was made from pork and beef and was longer and skinnier, and it came from Vienna. They were sold by German immigrants in the expanding cities of the booming Midwest. They were not parlor food. They were not aristocratic gambling food. They were not tea sandwiches. They were street food in the burgeoning American city that was full of new ethnic immigrants to this country. And they didn't even have buns until the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, maybe, also apocryphal. But before that, you ate them with special white gloves, which also feels apocryphal, but it's definitely the way I'm going to eat hot dogs from now on. Oh, wait, Sean from Australia, the gloves kept your fingers from getting greasy. Is a hot dog plus gloves a sandwich? No. Now, Donald Trump and a bunch of other creeps tell a story that white Europeans are the same. They're all the same group of people aligned against all of the other people they dislike. But in fact, at this time in history, his people, the Drumpfs or whatever, the German-American ancestors of Donald Trump, they were the untrustworthy subhuman other in this country. And along with all of the other ethnic immigrants, right, who are not from England or Ireland or Scotland. And even the Irish and Scot white people were considered to be lesser. And especially leading up to and into the First World War, German Americans anglicized their names to avoid discrimination. Their neighborhoods were routinely subject to anti-German raids and riots from nativist hordes. Sandwich people and hot dog people were not the same people. Every early menu that you have sent me over the years that lists hot dog sandwiches or hamburger, quote, sandwiches, you send that to me as though that's establishing historical precedent. But I am convinced, and I'm convinced I'm right, that those restaurants in, in early America added sandwich after hot dog or hamburgers to make them seem like sandwiches, to make them more familiar to their clientele, because at that time, hot dogs and hamburgers were exotic. They were suspect. They were foreign food, if you can believe it. To erase this fact is to perpetuate a myth of historic, unified, virtuous whiteness that is being used as a cudgel today against more recent immigrants and people of color. Now, I'm not saying that calling a hot dog a sandwich is racist, but it erases important and interesting distinctions, complexities, histories. It's like calling a burrito a wrap, and you're doing it in service of what? So two dudes in a dorm or a chat room can show each other how clever they are? Is it worth it? Every culture has a tradition of putting meat or filling in bread, or, you know, cornmeal or some other starch. There are lots of ways 
using sophistry to prove that the hot dog is a taco, is a burrito, is a pizza, is a dumpling, is a pupusa, is an arepa, is a kreplak, is a handful of wat stew in the injera bread, is a samosa, is a sandwich. And of course, there are charts that go along with it that are constantly being sent to me and Jesse on Twitter. I love you all. But follow that path and you find your way at Laura's dump party. That path leads to injustice. If a hot dog is a sandwich, then all is sandwich, and that's not fair. We are all human. We all eat meat or filling in bread. It is wonderful to celebrate that universality. And we may, in fact, want to spend a little more time at recognizing each other's humanity in real ways, rather than fighting on the internet about hot dogs and sandwiches, a thing that does not matter to anyone, and certainly does not matter to the many, many people who do not know where their next hot dog or sandwich is coming from. It is a luxury argument that does not matter. And because it doesn't matter, go ahead, do it. Call a hot dog a sandwich if you want to. I can't stop you and doesn't matter ultimately. But I won't stop saying that a hot dog is not a sandwich because this small little bit does matter. It is okay for things to be different things. It is okay for language to evolve. It is okay to accept changes in language, in custom and in culture, and not resist them. It is okay to acknowledge something is different and to appreciate it without giving it a name that we like better or forcing it into a category that makes us more comfortable. You are you, you are not me. A hot dog is a hot dog, it is not a sandwich. We are all in this together, but we're all in it separately too. It can be both. I don't say a hot dog is not a sandwich, only because it's true, but because everything is better that way. I shall never speak of this again. We did it. Thank you to everyone who sent in their disputes. All of this is now settled law. Our producer is the brilliant Jennifer Marmer, who we thank on this day as we do on each day. Only this day, more so. Thank you to all of our members for your contributions. If you're listening to this, you're either a Max Fund member or you're in the car with a Max Fund member. Uh, and we know that you could just keep freeloading if you wanted to and and you chose to help make this show possible and it means a lot to us we are very very grateful to you because that is why we are able to make this show and you're you're awesome you're you're good folks thank you very much i judge john hodgman absolutely echo all of bailiff jesse's sentiments thank you so much we'll see you next time on the judge john hodgman podcast maximumfun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.